Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Michael Keith. I'd like to welcome you all to the Decade of Migration Conference hosted by the Centre on Migration, Policy and Society, COMPASS. It's to celebrate the 10th birthday of COMPASS. And I think that spirit of a combination of public engagement and academic research hopefully captures the ethos as much as the substance of the research at COMPASS over the last decade. It's certainly been an aspiration of the the centre to engage both with the world beyond the ivory tower in terms of civil society, the policy-making world of Westminster and elsewhere, as well as trying to produce scholarship that is empirically grounded in the, the best social science whilst being reflective about the conditions under which it is produced, the social context being an important element of everything that I think we have done over the last decade. I'd also like to welcome everybody to the T.S. Eliot Lecture Theatre in Merton College. And there are exemplars, sometimes slightly uh, surprising exemplars of scholarship that might also set us an example, because I guess if we stand on the shoulders of giants in the research that we take forward, we also labour in their shadows. And there are certainly two exemplars of of that associated with the college, sometimes only briefly, the first of whom Theodore Adorno, who in his time at Merton College, in just after the war and before he headed to the, the States, began to develop some of the, the work for which he became particularly famous. A scholar who, always serious, was not afraid to highlight the problems of a Kantian Enlightenment and the importance of the social context of scholarly endeavour, so much so he was once uh, noted in Dialectic of Enlightenment, uh, commenting uh, that we should not be afraid at the particular time to laugh at the logic if it is in the interests of humanity. That sense of engaged, engaged research was part of that very serious commitment, which was, in terms of his engagement at Merton, slightly qualified by the fact that in his correspondence with Walter Benjamin, Adorno remarks that the rooms of Merton College are extremely cold. <laughs> um, but we hope that uh, the, the temperature is more ambient and more hospitable today in, ver- in various forms. But another scholar who also was here, who sadly passed away only last week, was Stuart Hall, who found both the college and the institution cold in other ways at times, but was still, I think, able to both to shape and find a media in which he began to launch... A record which Robin Cohen, who's speaking tomorrow, commented just yesterday, set him up as, I think, in many ways, one of the greatest of the public intellectuals written of the last 30 or 40 years. A scholar who, in his time at the president of the British Sociological Association, as well as in many, many other hats, was somebody who was committed to a form of scholarship of the everyday and the profoundly theoretical at the same time as recognising the connections between private troubles and public concerns, was an individual who was cautious about the treatment of the translation of an empirical data into knowledge, but equally the translation of knowledge into something that might approach wisdom. And I guess it's in their shadows and that spirit that we have tried to take forward at Compass over the last decade a programme of work which we see developing into the future, but in the conference outline we have provided some narrative that gives a sense of some of the work that Compass in 
framing report that we've described as the, the compass approach that we hope you have a chance to have a look at, as well as in the writings that are in the anthology, which will be launched at the reception at the end of today's discussions. I think, in that sense, I, I want to dwell no longer about the subject of the conference itself, beyond saying that we hope that in that spirit of engagement there will be a sense of the range of scholarship which has crossed many different disciplines in the history of Compass from most parts of the social sciences and humanities. So there will be both a combination of the economic and the cultural theoretical over the couple of days that we'll see, alongside a number of other disciplines that have characterised our work. We hope, therefore, that, that there will be a sense of provocation in the next couple of days. We hope that people find the time both interesting in thinking about some old challenges and new, but also maybe pr provocative in opening up some other interdisciplinary moments of, moments of engagement. I think in that spirit, I would finally like to both welcome and thank the Vice-Chancellor of the University and the Chief Executive of the Economic and Social Research Council, our funders for the last 10 years, who have both kindly agreed to open the conference. And the first of those will be the Vice-Chancellor of the University of Oxford, Andrew Hammond. Michael, thank you. And ladies and gentlemen, it's an enormous pleasure for me to welcome all of you to this conference on a decade of migration here at Merton College. As Michael said, Merton often is described as having the coldest rooms in Oxford. It's also one of three colleges that fights with each other over the claim of which is the oldest college in Oxford. Balliol University College and Merton are often in disagreement, but I notice that Merton is celebrating its 750th anniversary in a few months' time, so that'll be one that they'll get in quickly. I can't say before the others, because Balliol has just celebrated theirs. They obviously were better organised than Merton. But let me say it's also a great pleasure, ladies and gentlemen, to welcome you all to Oxford. I was chatting with Michael, who described as he arrives in Oxford on, on a morning driving into the city, it begins to resemble Venice. And I think many of you on the train and in the, on the road coming here will have seen the oceans of water, and we are a very damp city at the pleasant time. Now, it's also a great pleasure for me to welcome also the Chief Executive of the Economic and Social Research Council, Professor Paul Boyle, of course, ESRC has been a major funder of the Centre of Migration Policy and Society Compass, whose 10th birthday we're celebrating in these next two days. It's a particular pleasure to welcome Paul, because as many of you know, having spent a number of years now as the head of one of the UK's most important research councils, he clearly has not had enough of abuse being hurled at him, and he will soon be leaving, as you know, to become a vice-chancellor, and he will become the vice-chancellor of Leicester University. And Paul, congratulations, and very good luck in that new role. <laughs> Let me say also, we have attendees over these next two days from universities and institutions across the UK, and indeed across the world, indicating, I think, quite clearly 
both the extent of the engagement on the subject of migration, but also the geographical impact of the practical issue. So it's a great pleasure to welcome you all. I hope your discussions over these next two days are productive <coughs> and enjoyable. Now, these past 10 years have been quite remarkable for Compass. Under its founding director, Steve Vertevec, and then since 2008, under the outstanding leadership of Professor Michael Keith. It has also been a remarkable three years for Compass's research initiative, the Migration Observatory, which under the direction of Scott Blinder has been such an important contributor to the broader debate. And indeed, since the launch of the Migration Observatory in 2011, it's rare to pick up a newspaper or read a report or article on migration or immigration that does not make reference to the work of the Migration Observatory. And although the Migration Observatory has its detractors, and as Vice-Chancellor I do hear from them from time to time, <laughs> fairly loudly and fairly strongly, those detractors tend to be those most predisposed to ignoring hard evidence in favour of prejudice. And the Migration Observatory is held generally, right across the political divide, to be a source of objective and authoritative advice and research on what has become a heated and controversial subject here in the UK. So long may it continue in that role. Now, I'll come back to this in a few moments, but I want first to talk about the impact that Compass has had here in Oxford and in its contribution to the profile of the social sciences in this university. Compass is a small centre, but it is a prolific one. Twelve members of staff were submitted in the Research Excellence Framework last December in three separate subject disciplines, reflecting very much the range and strength of the interdisciplinary work that is carried out in the centre. Compass has also contributed to the success of the University of Oxford's ESRC Doctoral Training Centre proposals, developing and creating an interdisciplinary pathway in migration studies. And it was able to award three ESRC doctoral scholarships annually. It has also established a major master's programme through the launch of a new MSc in Migration Studies, which involves a collaboration between the Departments of Anthropology and Development Studies. And those are themselves centres of considerable strength here in Oxford. And Compass has been recognised by its principal funder, ESRC, as one of the two highest performing ESRC investments in the UK. Now, in recent years, much has been made of the contribution that universities make to their national economy. The idea of wealth creation is often posited as a third strand of university activity alongside those more traditional activities of teaching and research. Universities like Oxford, of course, do undertake all three of those strands. And just as manifestly, 
the strands of such activity are as intertwined as they are anywhere else in the world of higher education. But there is a facet of our activities that is often overlooked in the big, bold statements that governments like to make about turning out a highly trained workforce or attracting inward investment through recruiting overseas students or producing research that makes millions of pounds for the country. I'm referring to a more subtle output, but one that is no less essential for any government, and that is the provision of sound policy advice based on diligent and thorough research, the kind of research that can only be done in an objective and impartial way by researchers who care more about their subject than in particular outcomes. It's the kind of work that gets ignored at a society's peril. And indeed, it's the kind of work that gets ignored at the peril of the international community. And one only has to think about issues like climate change or the challenges of commercial fishing to recognise that importance. That is one of the great strengths of the work that my colleagues here in Compass do, and which I hope very much they will keep on doing, producing relevant, dispassionate, objective and accurate advice on migration and its impacts. Because without that research and advice, it would be impossible to produce sensible policy or make sound political decisions. Finally, I'd like to just add a few words about social sciences in Oxford. I must say it's been a matter of considerable prize to me as Vice-Chancellor to see how the profile of Oxford social sciences has developed over recent years, partly through that process of divisionalisation that took place in Oxford a few years ago, but also very much under the brilliant leadership of Roger Goodman, the head of social sciences, and Michael Spence, who was head before Roger. But also through the hard work and the commitment of my colleagues in individual departments and faculties and in centres such as Compass and research programmes like the Migration Observatory. Oxford is a fantastic place to do interdisciplinary work, the kind of interdisciplinary work that is at the cutting edge of teaching and research. It provides an endlessly flexible... Oxford provides an endlessly flexible workspace and headspace for academics, researchers and students to pursue the kind of activity that they wish to follow wherever it might take them. Such flexibility might be thought to be a situation of complete anathema to a university's leadership. Let me tell you, it could not be further from the truth. Long may this type of open and exploratory activity continue here in Oxford, here in Oxford social sciences departments, and very especially here in Compass 
Happy 10th birthday, Michael. Happy 10th birthday to all of you involved in the great work that Compass carries out. Thank you all. Our next speaker is Paul Boyle, who, as we just heard, is currently Chief Executive of the ESRC and about to move somewhere else. Thank you very much indeed for inviting me along. You've already heard a lot about Compass, and you won't be surprised that at ESRC we're very, very proud of this investment. Actually, listening to Andrew, I'm starting to wonder whether I've made the right decision about moving on from ESRC. It's been a very enjoyable job, and part of the reason why it's such an enjoyable job is being able to contribute to some of the investments like Compass that we're able to support. If there are some key things that I, I suppose I'd want you to take away from the few words I'm going to say, I won't keep you for too long at the beginning here. There are a number of things that I think Compass has really achieved. One of them is it quite clearly has had a lot of impact. We at the Research Council spend a lot of our time talking about impact and how important we think it is that the centres and various other things that we fund must, of course, have academic impact. We take that for granted almost. But we hope, wherever possible, that those investments can go on to have more social and economic impact from the work that they do. And Compass is an absolutely fantastic example of that. The second thing I would really want to draw attention to, this may come up on one of the slides, I suspect, is independence. We're determined at ESRC that once we get the funds from government, once we've agreed what our budget is, we are then independent of government and indeed any other organisation. We fund whatever we think the best science will be, the highest quality work, but we expect the work to be independent. And we've already heard that Compass has been doing a lot of work which will upset some and perhaps not upset others. We're very keen that the centres we fund are willing to get out there and make their point. And if on occasion that ruffles a few feathers, well, I'm not sure that's a, a bad thing at all. So we've been very impressed with the work that's been done here in a neutral but very scientific way, which has led to the sorts of impact that we've seen. And thirdly, leverage and legacy. One of the things that we're increasingly expecting of the investments at ESRC is if institutions are keen to host a major investment, remember this was a major 10-year investment, from our point of view, we wouldn't expect when eventually that funding runs out from ESRC, which for most centres eventually it will, we would expect them to continue. And we've seen fantastic success at Compass in leveraging money from the University of Oxford, who've been very generous at supporting the centre, but also from other places as well, to show that the work that we've funded has persuaded others that this really is an investment to continue to support. So we've been extremely impressed, not only with the impact, not only with the independence, but also with the fact that this centre has clearly managed to persuade the university it's situated in, and indeed others, of the value of the work that they're doing. So let me rush through a few slides. Um, first of all, just a sort of couple of standard slides. To anyone who doesn't know, I think you all do know what the ESRC is. We're a non-departmental public body uh, established in 1965. So nothing like Merton, but we are looking forward to celebrating <laughs> our 50th birthday next year. So sadly, I'll have moved on by then. I've got a few more months to go, but I'll have moved on before then. We are the major public sector funder of social science research in the UK and our budget means that it allows us to fund certain things which some of the other people who might be keen to fund social sciences are unable to do. So that includes some of the very major centre investments like Compass but also of course some of our major longitudinal studies and other things. Our three key principles which all as I've already pointed out relate strongly to Compass quality, impact and independence. So we only fund what we think is the most excellent science that we can fund we expect it to have impact above and beyond the academic impact where possible, and we expect it to undertake independent work on behalf of ESRC and others. 
This just gives you a quick indication of the budget of ESRC. So for 2013-14, we have a budget of around about 200 million. 181 of that comes directly from biz, so that's from public money. And the rest is uh, from co-produced initiatives where we bring in funding from other organisations, be it business, other government departments, the third sector, and so on. You'll know that in the spending review in 2010 through to 2014, we had a flat cash deal. That's effectively a 2%, roughly speaking, a 2% cut, because flat cash doesn't take into account inflation. And you'll all have heard, of course, that we've recently just been told that for the next spending review period, of course, a rather unusual spending review of one year, we've again been awarded a flat cash deal. Um, So that's a fantastic outcome, I think, for science. But, of course, over the period of a number of years, that 2% decline each year does start to add up. And if you compare us to some of our competitor countries, Germany being one example, you can see that they've decided in times of austerity that actually investing more in science is a good way of helping to encourage economic recovery. So while it would be churlish of us to complain about a flat cash deal, if you look across the welfare sector and various other places, science has been supported by this government actually very strongly. I think we do still have to keep reminding people that if we carry on with a flat cash deal for too long, then it will, of course, have implications for the science that we can produce. And this, on on the right-hand side, gives you a a rough indication of what we spend this money on. So broadly speaking, a quarter on training and skills, a lot of that through PhD studentships. A quarter, we mustn't forget that a quarter of the funding that we give out is purely responsive. So that means academics applying with their own ideas, no thematic steers, just whatever ideas people have coming to us and applying for funding, and we will fund the most excellent of those ideas. We also have a round of just a bit less than, but nearly a quarter, for methods and infrastructure. So this is where we fund a lot of our major data infrastructure and so on. And then a quarter which is more strategic and collaborative. And this is where we fund schemes which are steered to some degree, where with the community we've identified a series of strategic priorities for the organisation. So we try and steer some of the work that we do to fund those strategic areas, which were... Uh, discussed and agreed in a sense of collaboration with the academic community but also with other stakeholders. So that gives you a rough idea of the sort of way we divide our budget up. And I should say that we're right in the middle now of developing the next strategic plan for the organisation. And this means that we will obviously be questioning, have we got the balance of our spend right? Should we be thinking hard about whether we should be diverting some of our money into some areas and perhaps reducing it in others? And that conversation will continue Had I stayed in post, it probably would be finished around about the autumn, but I'm determined not to leave a strategic plan sitting there for the person who takes over from me. So while we'll do a lot of the work behind that, it probably won't be launched until January, which gives the next chief executive a chance to have some influence and shape over that. So what do we fund? Well, we fund a whole range of things. This is a rough idea of what ESRC funds, our schemes, our competitions and initiatives. So this is the standard grant scheme and so on. These are the ones where people apply responsibly. The centres and large grants, these are the very large initiatives where at the moment we have a funding limit of about £10 million for any centre or large grant, so they can be very significant investments. You've already heard how well Compass has done, but we fund other investments like the Institute for Fiscal Studies. That's one of the long-term centres that we've contributed to over a long time. So there are many other very well-known centres across the country that we support. We have a lot of resource for capital infrastructure at the current time. So in addition to the budget I pointed out there, in the last couple of years we've been given an extra £65 million from government to support capital infrastructure and we've used a lot of that around our administrative data sets and and also around the LIFE study, which is the next big birth cohort study of 100,000 children. 
We've put a lot of money in postgraduate funding, around about 600 a year. Knowledge exchange opportunities, and here we're moving to use a, an approach which the EPSRC has used for some time, impact accelerator accounts. Basically, this means giving a block of funding to universities and asking them to deliver on knowledge exchange, giving a lot more flexibility to the institutions to use those funds in a variety of ways to engage with industry and others outside of academia. And then we also have a seminar series, which is quite a small part of our portfolio, but as Funnily enough, has uh, attracted an awful lot of interest. It does exceptionally well every year when we come to evaluate our various programmes. For quality related to spend, the seminar series does extremely well. But then there's a whole series of perhaps more recent initiatives that ESRC has invested in in the last couple of years. And I would imagine that a good number of these will form at least part of the strategic plan as we go forward into the next period. So we've launched a What Works initiative. This is an initiative where we've been funding alongside, very closely with government departments, centres which are designed to try and make better use of existing evidence to help inform policy. So instead of funding brand new research all the time in these centres, these will be doing a better job of synthesising existing evidence. Our concern was that we're very good, we believe, at funding lots of new evidence all the time, but we're perhaps not quite so good at reflecting back on existing evidence and using that to influence and shape policy. So that's one initiative that's up and running now. The future of the UK and Scotland. So this was an initiative where we decided there was such a huge social science issue that was going to have such a big impact on the whole of the UK that we couldn't ignore it. And we put in place probably the fastest thing we've ever funded, actually, the quickest delivery of any new programme, so that we could make sure there was a whole series of research funding that would influence and help shape the referendum. So people could get neutral, independent observations about what the implications of a vote, yes or no, might be in, in 2014. QSTEP, the first time the ESRC has invested in undergraduate training. So we've always put our money into postgraduate training and beyond, but we've been feeling over the last probably as much as 20 years that we've had a real problem in getting properly trained quantitative researchers. It's not by any means to say that we don't value qualitative research, it's just simply that we have a, a deficit of properly advanced trained quantitative researchers. So we've teamed up with Nuffield Foundation and Hefke and put together a programme of nearly £20 million to support centres of excellence in training of undergraduate students so that we will have a cohort of social scientists with the skills that we need in postgraduate studies and beyond. We've also introduced a new scheme on transforming social science. So this is a transformative research scheme, a brand new approach to peer review. We think we're very good at funding incremental research research that builds gradually on the body of evidence. It's vital. We'll continue to do it. But what we were concerned about is whether we're funding enough radical transformative science. And we came up with a brand new way of funding this because one of the problems is if you use traditional peer review, it can sometimes lead to conservative decisions, particularly when there's an awful lot of very good projects that are competing for a small amount of funding. So this new scheme, we've run one call on it. The second call is just out now. So far, we've had a lot of positive feedback from the community about this, and we'll see as the years develop whether or not we really are generating transformative ideas. The Secondary Data Analysis Initiative, uh, designed to exploit existing data and, and designed to, to involve co-production. So here we expect those who want to take advantage of existing data sets to team up with a non-academic partner to think about how those data might be used. And the Administrative Data Research Network, which I've touched on, this is where we're trying to make better use of existing government data so a major, about £30 million investment in trying to make better use of our individual level records that are held by government departments in a robust and confidential way. 
We've also, of course, funded a whole series of things around demography and population change. So alongside Compass, of course, we've had the Centre for Population Change, Southampton and a number of institutions in Scotland, uh, which have been working closely with the Office for National Statistics and the, the National Records Office in Scotland, which is the equivalent. The Centre's a population programme that's running for many years, and this provides access to the community to 71, 81, 91, 2001, and indeed, if we are to have future censuses beyond 2011, it will carry on supporting those. Norface, where we teamed up with a number of European partners to fund a major programme on migration in Europe. This involved a number of countries coming together to pool our resources to look at migration topics. These are just some of the other highlights in the portfolio. But of course, at the bottom here, the various cross-sectional longitudinal studies we fund are particularly valuable to demography and population studies type work. This community of researchers is one that makes a particular call on some of those national resources that we've funded. So what about Compass? Well, I'm not going to dwell on this because you'll hear a lot more about this from people who know more than I do about the, the wonderful achievements of this, but I've got a few slides that talk about these, some of the things that come to the office that we're particularly proud about. So there's no question that Compass has now generated a very international reputation. In fact, the audience and indeed the speakers that we have at this meeting is just an example of that. It's been quite unique in trying to undertake research that spans a whole range of scales. So we can point to quite a lot of impact on UK-focused work, but also global migration work. And that's been interesting to see how diverse the portfolio has been. It's looked both at documented and undocumented migrants. It's looked at some of the sort of traditional areas around gender and so on. But it's also introduced interesting new approaches to migration. Some of the work around how technology influences and, and shapes migration, I think, has been very interesting. Just a couple of quick examples, and again, you'll hear about these, I'm sure. But we've been very impressed with the, the work that came out of the Migration Observatory on Britain's 70 million debate, uh, informing Parliament, politicians and others about a debate around how are we going to curb or should we indeed curb the population to a, some sort of magical number. Societies get very fixated on round numbers. Why 70 million matters particularly is an important issue, and indeed that report that came out comes, drew strong attention to this. It shouldn't just be that we focus on a single number, we ought to think about the why and how that's an important number and how we might then go on to reduce migration if that's an, a, a sensible thing to do. And of course the report showed very strongly that one of the elements that you might not want to reduce is student mobility. Of the net migration that we receive, a good chunk of that is students, and in fact if you ask the public the public aren't particularly concerned about the country attracting a good number of students, nor are the vice-chancellors and others who are very keen to see students come to this country. But, of course, at the moment, the impression in China and India particularly is not a very good one. Many other countries are benefiting from the fact that the UK is seen as a place which is not as welcoming as it has been in the past. And I think it was an excellent report which drew strong attention to that and I think helped shape some debate in Parliament. We just hope that these issues continue to be debated properly that everyone recognises one of the probably one of the strongest areas of import for us in terms of financial import comes from our student population. There's also been lots of obviously really important intellectual work. Ian Walker's work is, is work that's been talked about quite a lot in the office. He's been doing work on diaspora and a, again a whole range of examples of how that work has had influence not just on government thinking, which it has, and governments abroad, of course, in many cases, but even on business and other stakeholders who are investing in countries abroad and want to learn more about how they can understand how to build up relationships and so on. So Ian Walker's work is a great example of some of the things that we've picked up in the office as having real impact. 
So as we look to the future, as far as I understand it, Compass is focusing in on about five broad topic areas, this global migration flows, the socioeconomics of labour migration, the relationships between mobility, citizenship and the sense of belonging, uh, challenging assumptions around urban change, and also the relationship between migration and welfare. But also we've got to embed that, of course, as Compass is in doing, in the public and scholarly debate of the time. And there's no question at all that this is, and I'm sure will continue to be, the age of migration. You could just think about the whole variety of ways in which migration of different types is shaping public discourse, public debate, and I think it, you know, Compass and indeed some of the other investments interested in migration issues are likely to go from strength to strength. So we have to think about the role of migration in local economies as well as national. We have to think about it in its political agenda. We have to think about the individuals that are involved, of course, and a lot of the work is focused on that. And we have to remember that there are something like 230 million international migrants at the current time, half of whom, of course, are women, but an increasing number of children involved in that and the implications for them. And so key issues to think about as we go further into the future, that of course the drivers to migration are numerous and complex. You'll all be talking in much more detail and much more intelligently about this than, than I will today. But we've got to think about those different types of migration, the family reunification migration, the refugee migration, where of course they're not uh, moving of their own choice, and the effects that these are likely to have on different families from the national to the international. If we just pick up the newspapers, which I did on the, in fact, came back from China yesterday and flew in last night, so I was flicking through the newspaper on the plane, and of course, immediately in any newspaper, almost any newspaper you pick up on a daily basis, there will be topics on migration. So here, three or four that came up in just the last few days, migrant workers face new curbs. So the whole issue of whether or not European workers who fail to hold down a £150 a week job for three months should be barred from receiving benefits. And of course, we could think about extremes of whether or not we support or don't export, support that. Perhaps a reasonable control on benefit tourism, as some might argue. On the other hand, perhaps pandering to right-wing concerns based on a lack of evidence, because in fact most of the evidence shows that migrants who come into this country are, are financially of a benefit to the UK rather than taking money away from us. UK borders must be controlled, and of course the headline there is the fear that lax border controls are going to allow extremism to flourish. Well, reasonable fears of extreme groups there. Of course, we've got to think carefully about the development of those. Or exaggerated concerns. When we think hard about where extremism is developing, we know that a lot of the extreme views may come from British-born uh, individuals. It's not all necessarily to do with immigrants and so on. What about the Swiss, who are now mulling over the implications of a vote to curb immigration, which, of course, has huge impacts for them, at least uh, now to do with European funding and so on. A reasonable response to large influxes? Or again, is this the right-wing political agenda which is influencing this and ignoring the value that Switzerland has had from immigrants who come in? And William Hague, of course, confirming UK plans to accept vulnerable Syrian refugees at last, resisting any refugees coming to the UK for a long time and now willing to consider small numbers of refugees perhaps coming. Possibly a nuanced response which built on evidence that refugees actually may well do better if they're resettled close to home in societies that are more familiar. There's obviously academic evidence around that. Or perhaps a failure to acknowledge the plight of refugees in a dire situation, perhaps followed by a decision that's too little too late. All of these examples I put up perhaps exaggerated extreme views, but the point being that there will be extreme differences of opinion around these issues. And that's the sort of job that I think Compass has been doing to try and step back 
and give what is an independent, nuanced view based on the evidence, which is not what's always used in the past. So in conclusion, final slide. It seems to me that the costs and benefits of migration do demand careful scrutiny and theorisation. It's not all about, of course, just a, a talking to policymakers and trying to influence them. It is about coming up with brand new ways of thinking about migration scholarship. But in the end, if that can then feed through to influencing policymakers, particularly in areas like migration, which is so important, and which I'm afraid so often we don't use evidence to, to inform ourselves, then I think that this is a, a fantastic opportunity for the centre. And, in our view, Compass and the Migration Observatory must, of course, continue to be at the heart of the debate. And we hope that in future years they'll continue to come to ESRC for various types of funding to help support the endeavour from now on. So congratulations to Michael for the last 10 years. It's been a fantastic achievement. It's not wrong to say that it really is one of the centres we've been extremely proud of at ESRC. Thank you.